And welcome to the first ever Homeless Hub podcast. Through this podcast, we're going to bring you stories, interviews, and research to help you better understand poverty and homelessness in Canada, where policy is going, and what you can do, hopefully, to make an impact in your community. Today, we're going to talk about food insecurity, and it's an issue that takes on a particular relevance during the winter holiday months. Uh, There's a lot of chatter about food drives and food banks and giving to the less fortunate, but we don't hear nearly enough about why people go hungry around the holidays or why people go hungry at all and why this whole issue of food insecurity still exists in today's modern multicultural and affluent Canada. To explore this issue of food insecurity, we're going to be talking to Dr. Valerie Tarasik of the University of Toronto, one of the foremost experts on food insecurity in Canada. Alongside Naomi Dackner and Andy Mitchell, Dr. Tarasik recently released Household Food Insecurity 2011, a by-the-numbers report that breaks down food insecurity in Canada. And I don't think I have to tell you it's required reading for anybody who's interested in hunger and poverty in Canada. And certainly you'll hear more about that report in our interview, which you're about to hear right now on the Homeless Hub podcast. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Tarasik. Let's start by talking about food banks. Recently, Food Banks Canada released their hunger count report for 2013. And in that report, they found in March of this year, over 833,000 individuals were helped by Canada's food banks. By contrast, your report on food insecurity in 2011 found over 3.9 million Canadians were food insecure. Now, I know there's a big difference in dates between those two reports, but certainly some connection can be made between the two of them. And what I want to know from you is, why is there such a gap between these numbers? Well, um, it's it's a really good question, and I'm glad you're drawing attention to it. Um, the, it the disconnect simply reflects the fact that most people who are struggling to put food on the table don't use food banks. That's the bottom line. When we look at the demographic characteristics of who's food insecure in Canada and compare our demographics to the demographics in those Food Bank Canada reports, you can see that they're serving a particular subset of the broader population of food insecure, but it's nowhere near the majority. I mean, the difference is like four and a half or five times. So why is it then that food banks, this program that we have that is specifically there to make sure that people who are hungry have access to food, why is it that Canadians who are food insecure aren't all taking advantage of that program? The, I mean, the only people, I think, who think these things are a one-to-one match with the problem are people on the outside of the problem. Like they're they're not uniformly you know they're not uniformly available or accessible, but also you know it, it, food banks are fundamentally a culturally inappropriate response to this problem. You know, in an affluent society like ours, people aren't comfortable seeking charity, and um, to go to a place where you have to kind of out your your poverty and your extreme deprivation to total strangers. It's just not something that I think a lot of people are prepared to do. They don't identify with the solution, or not the solution, it's not the solution. They don't identify with that that response. Um, it may not be available to them. If one of the differences, one of the most salient differences in the demographics is that most of the people who are served by food banks are on social assistance. And 
I think that reflects, you know, a lot of things. It says a lot about our social assistance programs, but also about the design of food banks and their ability to, or their attempts to, to reach out to people on social assistance. But when you look at the um, breakdown of people who are food insecure in Canada, actually the majority of those people aren't on social assistance. They're in the workforce. Um, and when we interview people who are not using food banks but are food insecure, you know, some of what we get back is, well, you know, I'm working. <laughs> I don't have time. Or, you know, the food bank in my neighborhood doesn't serve people who work. It only serves people on welfare. Um, or, you know, I can't get there. Or somebody else has got children at home and they've got childcare responsibilities. You know, we did a look at um, the hours of operation for food assistance programs in five cities in Canada, for food banks in five cities. And um, I think over half of them were only open for something like 10 hours a week or less. So, like, it's not like these are grocery stores where there's an ad-lib access. You know, I've got a Loveless store near my house that's open seven days a week, and it's open until midnight every day. But food banks wouldn't be doing anything near like that. They're volunteer-run, and they're just, you know, they're, they're not designed to manage this, this, this problem. So food banks then, they have an imperfect model that doesn't reach everyone who could possibly need that. What then is the way that you fix food banks? Is it government regulation? Is it intervention? What's the best way to fix food banks? No, no. Um, the other finding that we have, and other people who've looked at this question have also got, is that it's not as if going to a food bank stops somebody from being food insecure or from even going hungry. We have no evidence to support that. We did a study a few years ago looking at 500 families in low-income neighborhoods in Toronto, and um, most of those families were food insecure. Um, Eight out of ten were reported in the last 12 months some struggle with um, food, and 28% were severely food insecure, meaning that there were indications that people had actually um, not eaten when they needed to because they didn't have food or money for food. But less than a quarter of those families had ever used a food bank and only something like 4% reported doing it on a monthly basis. And when we looked at the, so we asked questions about the reasons why people didn't use food banks and that's where we learned things about, you know, they just didn't identify with that as a response. They weren't that desperate. They, you know, it, it wasn't accessible, those kinds of things. But when we looked at the people who did use food banks and we had a lot of data on these households, um, what we could say is they were more likely to be severely food insecure, which means, from our vantage point at least, that the act of using a food bank was an act of desperation, and you'd only do it when you absolutely had to. Um, but they were severely food insecure. There was nothing to say that once they used a food bank, they got better. They continued to be struggling in a very desperate way to put food on the table. So they sought out food assistance, food charity at that point, um, at, or at some point in that process for them as a way to try to mitigate their, their struggle. But it was one of multiple strategies that people employed in those situations. And we had no evidence to suggest that that, that getting um, help from a food bank solved their problems. Not at all. I mean, we can see it as a marker of desperation, but it doesn't reverse the story. So when you're asking what's the solution, well, the solution isn't food banks, and it isn't making more food banks or bigger food banks or better food banks. I mean, people are trying to do that, but, you know, 
we've got 30 years of history of trying to do that, and it doesn't actually fix this problem. If it did, we wouldn't be able to get these numbers like 3.9 million in 2011, 4 million in 2012. Um, you know, those numbers wouldn't exist. Let's move on to the topic of food insecurity. We've talked a bit about your report on food insecurity in Canada in 2011, but what's the state of food insecurity today? From what we can tell, things have gotten a bit worse. Um, In January, we will release a report on 2012's data. And in 2011, we reported 3.9 million. In 2012, we're reporting 4 million. Um, So the numbers are creeping upward. And we've seen an entrenchment of the patterns that we reported in 2011 with this high vulnerability of people on social assistance, seniors being in general protected from the problem, a much lower rate of food insecurity among seniors than among other Canadians, and this um, big glut of people in the workforce but still not able to put food on the table. So the story is is not a positive one, and that we've got this kind of um, if any things are things are static, or if anything, they're getting a little bit worse. You mentioned that Canada's seniors are insulated from this issue of food insecurity. Why is that? I think that that is about the kinds of policies we have in place for seniors. When someone turns 65, they're eligible for an old age pension. There's a guaranteed income supplement. They have supplementary drug coverage. Um, They also enjoy all kinds of discounts that are offered to them through the private sector. So they have discounted transit fares. There are seniors' days at many retail establishments. There are many, many benefits, you know, public and private, um, for people who are seniors. It's beautiful. And what it effectively does is create an income floor for seniors, but with a whole lot of other in-kind benefits alongside. So... What we can see is that um, seniors have less than half the probability of food insecurity as working-aged adults do, um, and that's that's about the fact that we take we take good care of seniors. I mean, when someone if someone is a single person on social assistance in Ontario, let's say we've got a single person on welfare, and when they turn 65, assuming they live long enough to turn 65, at this point in time, their income will literally double just because they turn 65, not to mention the fact that their cost of living will diminish because they have access to other sorts of subsidies like subsidized transit and, and other sorts of benefits from the private sector. So it, we, we dramatically change the, the cost of living and the, the income for low-income people um, who become seniors. So, and, and what we can see is that that complex fabric of social policy and private sector participation is, is, is effective. Now, we haven't reduced food insecurity to seniors to zero, and we need to take a look to see how come we haven't, who is it that's falling through the cracks, but it has been dramatically, dramatically reduced. And in keeping with this idea of policies that address food insecurity, one area that we haven't seen much success in Canada has been in the North, particularly in Nunavut. So what I want to know from you is just what works, what doesn't work, and just how are we doing in terms of addressing food insecurity in Canada's north? What I can tell you is that in 2012, so in 2011, none of it stood out as having a rate of food insecurity of what more than, um, let's pick up my data set here, um, none of it stood out as having a, a rate of food insecurity that was 36 0.4% of uh, prevalence of household food insecurity in 2011. 
also see a very worrisome rise in the Northwest Territories. It's nowhere near as high, but um, still the rate has gone up. So this is a very serious problem. I mean, everybody in Canada should be concerned about what's happening up there. There's no way that the children in um, Nunavut can be getting the opportunities to, you know, grow into healthy, um, productive adults if they're living in these conditions now. So it's a very serious problem. I mean, you asked me what was being done. I mean, I've heard um, stories of, you know, there being some kind of a food security initiative in Nunavut. I mean, I probably heard that story a couple of years ago. If anything was being done that was very effective, there's no way we would have seen uh, such a marked increase in food insecurity between 2011 and 2012. So I would say in Nunavut we've got a national crisis on our hands. And it has to be federal intervention that makes a difference up there. But it's a very, very serious problem. Let's talk about this idea of intervention for just a moment. Is there anywhere in Canada, is there any government that's getting it right? Is there somebody who should be seen as the shining example by which other governments in Canada can learn and better react to food insecurity? The interesting story from the perspective of poverty reduction is Newfoundland and Labrador. They were one of the first provinces to launch a poverty reduction strategy. They did so in 2006, and it was a very aggressive strategy. It targeted not just the prevalence of poverty in Newfoundland and Labrador, but also the depth of poverty. And that's really, really critical to tackling um, food insecurity because you can change, you know, the percentage of, um, I don't know, families with children living below some income threshold, some arbitrary income threshold. You can make small changes there, and we can see that in Ontario with their Ontario Child Benefit. But it doesn't... Often, it doesn't translate into um, a change in food insecurity rates um, because the amount of money that's been um, handed out and the, the, even the recipients of it, um, it doesn't necessarily get at the depth of the problem or the changes that are made to people that are really, really poor. The increments in their incomes just aren't enough to, to turn things around. In Newfoundland and Labrador, when they introduced their poverty reduction strategy, one of the things they did was some very, very radical reforms with respect to social assistance. They raised rates, so Newfoundland went from one of the lower rates to one of the highest, I think the highest in Canada, and they also indexed their um, social assistance rates to inflation, which is huge. Very few provinces have indexation of welfare rates, and um, food prices have risen steadily over the last few years. Indexation is a major, major component. Um, But the other things Newfoundland and Labrador did, they altered the asset limits. So when someone went on social assistance, they didn't have to liquidate so much of their assets in order to be um, declared eligible. Um, And they enabled, if people on social assistance garnered employment, they enabled them to keep more money from work. Um, So they were able to realize more benefits from even short-term or part-time work while on social assistance. So it was a very well thought out strategy with you know, and I'm I'm just describing the part of that strategy that related to people on social assistance. But there were multiple components to it that looked at um, assets and um, the um, interface between social assistance and employment, but also looked at the benefit levels overall and their you know tied them to inflation. What we saw then between 2007 and 2011 was a marked drop in well, actually between 2007 and 2009-10, a marked drop in food insecurity rates in Newfoundland and Labrador. And when we dug more deeply, you could see a dramatic decline in the vulnerability of people on social assistance in that province compared to others. 
and it speaks volumes about the effect of what they did. I mean, what it also provides, just like the senior story, I think it provides an example of the fact that this problem really is about social policy, and it's sensitive to changes in social policy. We can make it better or we can make it worse, depending on what happens from the perspective of income support programs for people that are at the bottom end of the economic spectrum. And Newfoundland and Labrador is a beautiful story of how that worked. Now, sadly, Newfoundland and Labrador's numbers started to creep up in 2012, and I don't know what that's about. It isn't about social assistance recipients because they continue to be markedly less vulnerable than social assistance recipients in the other provinces, but perhaps it relates to employment conditions in Newfoundland in this last um, period. Of course, food insecurity doesn't exist in a vacuum. It influences and is itself influenced by other social issues. So how does food insecurity factor into issues like homelessness or mental health? To start with the housing piece, the two problems are very, very tightly intertwined. Not even We don't even have to get to something as extreme as people being at risk of um, home, being homeless. But what we found in our research is that when... Um, Households are struggling to put food on the table. Chances are they're also struggling to pay bills. And so people are, are, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul. That's the line that we hear over and over again. So um, forfeiting one expenditure is a way to free up money for something else. Sometimes they're forfeiting food to free up money to pay bills or rent. Sometimes they're um, forfeiting bill payments as a way to free up a bit of money for uh, food. So it's a very precarious existence. And um, in the course of our research with those 500 families, we absolutely found families that were facing eviction, but also families living in very crowded conditions and in housing that required major repairs, you know, in, in, in conditions that they wouldn't choose to be in. But part of trying to manage on a low income is often, you know, um, engaging in chronic compromises around things like housing quality as a way to minimize the expenditure on housing to free up as much as you possibly can of your scarce resources for food. But it's it's part of why that intersection of food insecurity with housing insecurity and you know broader broader manifestations of financial insecurity that's part of why we're never going to solve problems of food insecurity with food charity that only focusing on the food dimension of a situation that is characterized by extreme material de- deprivation means that you're you're not being attentive to these other components, like the like the housing circumstances, or the recreation, or the personal hygiene, or the healthcare, health care, you know, I mean, people in those circumstances are also not doing um, the kinds of, li- you know, healthy lifestyle behaviors that we'd want them to do to, you know, that we, all of us are being encouraged to do as a way to ward off chronic disease risk. Um, so that's one piece. The, I want to talk briefly, though, about the health story as well. One of the things that we've had an abundance of data to work with to do is to look at the relationship between food insecurity and health. The fact that um, household food insecurity is monitored in Canada on this thing called the Canadian Community Health Survey means that we get always those measures in tandem with an abundance of measures of people's health. And what we can see is an extraordinary intersection between food insecurity and poor health. So when we look at adults in households characterized as food insecure, they are way more likely than other adults in the country to report a whole range of chronic physical and mental health problems. 
all kinds of things. I mean, things like diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, but also things like back problems, arthritis, asthma, migraines. The strongest intersection is with mental illness. And um, we also see a relationship between the severity of food insecurity and the probability of reporting all these conditions. Um, so that the more um, severe the household circumstances, the greater the likelihood that an adult will report having been diagnosed with multiple chronic conditions. And it's very likely that as those situations get severe, um, adults will report um, mental health problems as well as physical health problems. Um, what does it mean in terms of a chicken and an egg? Well, it's hard to pull it apart, that for sure to be in a circumstance of trying to manage, um, you know, with a very um, constrained income, can't do anybody's health any good. So from a whole bunch of dimensions, both from the stress perspective, um, but also the need to allocate scarce resources for things other than, you know, a healthy diet or medication or whatever a person needs needs to purchase to maintain their health. So it's for sure that food insecurity has to be deleterious to health, and there's some very good data to suggest that that's true for Canadian children as well. But the other side of it is that I think the intersection of health and food insecurity suggests that when we find people with meager incomes, those who are most likely to plummet into these very terrible conditions of food insecurity, they're, they're people who are also struggling with chronic illness. That to be managing on a very low income is hard, right? You have to be very resourceful. It's it's very hard work. Somebody who is at the same time trying to manage a chronic illness or multiple chronic illnesses has too many things to try to figure out. And they just may not physically or mentally be able to be as resourceful as they need to be to survive um, with a low income. Also, chances are their, their costs are higher. Um, they may incur costs for medications that are essential for them, um, but they may also incur extra costs because of mobility issues, because of the need to try to practice a special diet as a way to manage their diabetes or whatever. So, it's it, I mean it's it's heartbreaking to to see these um, this intersection of food insecurity and health because it suggests that not only are we not respecting people's right to food in the way that we've designed our social programs, but we're not taking very good care of low-income Canadians with chronic health problems. Considering the links that you just established between food insecurity and homelessness and mental health issues, it's pretty clear to me that we need policies in a variety of areas to change if we're going to be addressing food insecurity and all of its causes. But it's not really as simple as that, is it? We don't have a national housing strategy. We don't have a national poverty strategy. So what are your thoughts on the commitment that you're seeing from government to properly address food insecurity? Well, I think it's 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 unfortunate. I mean, we need better leadership, right? Um, we can't, if you think about the food bank story, I mean, we've got an awful lot of Canadians who are doing things like the support for that CBC Sounds of the Seasons campaign um, is a beautiful example, right? We've got a whole lot of people in Canada who are reaching into their own pockets to try to do what they can, um, what they're what they can figure out to do to try to make sure that people don't go hungry in their midst. I mean, we, you know, I think when when you look at the way that we have this huge food charity um, system in place in Canada now, totally on the backs of um, philanthropy, 
it suggests that it is a very fundamental Canadian value that we, you know, we want people to be able to have the food that they need, and if given the opportunity, we'll try to help out. Um, we need leadership, political leadership, that reflects that value as well. And that's what we don't have. And you're right. it's 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 a, it's a very serious problem. But I think the starting point is exactly the kinds of stories that you're working on, right? People need to be um, the public, the same public that is um, so constantly acting on their concern around things like hunger in Canada. That public needs to be educated around the realities of the social policy underpinnings of these problems so that when they look to their elected officials, they can look to them for leadership on this point. Let's wrap things up by talking about the future. What needs to be done to address food insecurity in Canada going forward? I think it boils down to a rebuilding of our social safety net. Um, We absolutely need to address the vulnerability of people in social assistance, and I think we have to do that at a national level. Um, But in addition, it is so, so important that both at the national level and at the provincial level we see action um, around the vulnerability of people in the workforce, that the supports that are in place, I mean, um, the the policy issues that relate to this problem range from federal and provincial tax credits and tax benefits, tax exemptions, to things like um, minimum wage. So there's... and layered onto that, possibly um, incentives for the private sector to participate more actively in ensuring employment conditions that enable people to realize um, food security. So I think there, it's if there's an overarching theme, it's social safety net, but um, but there are two discrete subgroups where there needs to be two discrete sets of policy actions, I think. I mean, the, the one unifying idea that people have put forward is a basic income, and that's one way to think about putting um, in place some kind of an income floor. Um, another way to, to think about it is to re-craft um, the existing policy mechanisms just to make sure that they work better for people on the bottom end of our economic spectrum. And with that, we have reached the end of our discussion on food insecurity with the University of Toronto's Dr. Valerie Tarasik and the end of this edition of the Homeless Hub podcast. Thanks again for listening, and if you have any questions or comments about the podcast or about the Homeless Hub itself, you can always reach us by email at thehub at edu.yorku.ca, on Facebook at facebook.com slash homelesshub, or via Twitter at at homelesshub.